Welcome to episode 188 of Speaking of Mysteries. This is Nancy Clare, and today we're going to talk to Susan Ilya McNeil about her new book, The King's Justice, her ninth Margaret Maggie Hope mystery. Welcome, Susan. Oh, thank you so much, Nancy. So, as I mentioned, The King's Justice is the ninth installment in your series. And it's been interesting to see the arc of her character. Maggie's a British citizen who was brought up in the U.S. Uh, and started her service for king and country in 1939 with a high degree of optimism, which I think she probably shared with most of the country. Now in this book, it's 1943, which had to have been uh, probably the absolute nadir of World War II for the English. And Maggie's not right. the same woman she was four years ago. So how would you describe her evolution? Well, you know, Maggie has come so far and grown so much as a character. Um, but the last, uh, all of the novels, but especially I think the last two novels have been so hard on her. And I really wanted to be able to show her trauma and also, you know, the trauma of people who go through war, the trauma of people on the home front in London in 1943 specifically, it was, it was a tough time for people. You know, they had been on rationing for so long. There weren't bombs falling, but there were all of these unexploded bombs all over that could go off at any moment. So it was just, it was a hard time. And at the beginning of The King's Justice, uh, Maggie is at a crossroads. Um, she's, uh, the book opens with her attending the sentencing phase of the trial of the serial, serial killer Nicholas Ryder, a.k.a. the Blackout Beast, uh, that she came to know a bit too well in previous novel. And after her recent experiences in Scotland, she's left the secret services behind, both the SOE and MI5. So right. how did you pick diffusing bombs as her next patriotic service? Well, both because in, in reading about the history of London, that was a really big thing that was happening on the home front. There were so many, um, you know, unexploded bombs, uh, UXBs. And so there were conscientious objectors mostly um, and also volunteers who were diffusing them. Um, I also really thought metaphorically, Maggie herself is really like an unexploded bomb. I mean, there's so much inside that she's holding in, and it could really just go off at any moment. So I really loved that metaphor. I also thought it worked for, for England. I mean, this is a country where, you know, everyone had a stiff upper lip, but everything was getting a little ragged and, and really, you know, strained and tense. So I just thought that was like a kind of cool thing. Well, Maggie is certainly acting out in this book, so I thought yeah. maybe you'd like <laughs> like to talk about some of her uh, some of the new habits she's picked up since she first yeah. moved uh, to London in 1939. Yeah. Um, so Maggie is now. Uh, well, she actually did smoke a bit in um, the fourth book, uh, but. She's, she quit, but now she's smoking again, and now she's, she's drinking quite a bit. And she picked up a secondhand motorcycle. So she's, she's riding around London on the secondhand motorcycle way too fast. And um, I don't know. She's trying to sort of make things happen with her, her bow, uh, Detective Chief Inspector Durgan, which um, I don't know. I don't think it's happening quite you know, naturally. So 
she's got a lot going on. He is a reticent Scot, isn't he? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And if you know anybody from Glasgow, I mean, he's such a Glasgow person, really. He he really uh, yes he's he's a Glaswegian of of the sort of the old school so uh, he was he was a very interesting guy and uh, and and not didn't act as I would have expected with with Maggie and I, I, probably to Maggie's frustration. Yeah, well, some you know, I think maybe some he sensed some of her. Um, urgency and perhaps that it wasn't necessarily to do with him so much. Um, and also he's really married to his work and that's always going to come first with him. So talk about the title of the book, the King's justice and what, ah. what that phrase actually means, because it, 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 there's something on the surface, um, an easy explanation. And then, and then it is a, a theme that I felt ran through the entire book. Yeah, so the king's justice refers to um, the monarch's ability to pardon a criminal sentence to um, capital punishment, which was still happening during World War II. Um, and so there was an, an effort to get the king to pardon Nicholas Ryder, or uh, uh, Nicholas Ryder hoped that the king could pardon him if he gave up some information in exchange. Um, but, you know, I really was thinking a lot about what what is justice? What what helps the survivors? What helps I don't know the victims' families and what doesn't? And it's incredibly complicated. I also thought there there's a a strain of the idea of forgiveness in this book. Um, yeah, that that sort of goes in and out. Both the relationship of the citizens with conscientious objectors. Maggie's internal struggle to forgive uh, people from her past and to forgive herself. Yeah, forgiveness is um, definitely on my mind. Again, it's a really complicated thing, and it, it just, um, I wanted to really delve into it and not just deal with it with, a, like, oh, I forgive them, you know, God bless them all sort of thing. So, you know, I really wanted to go into, like, these are very complicated feelings, and they might change, and they might grow, and, you know, you might have a different opinion in a year or whatever. So, uh, meanwhile, as as is said, uh, some of Maggie's coworkers on the bomb squad, who are conscientious objectors, as you mentioned, start disappearing. And Maggie, she may be diffusing bombs, but she is a trained investigator, uh, you know, also known as a spy. And she's concerned for these missing young men. And um, meanwhile, right. another meanwhile, uh, Durgan, uh, her boyfriend, erstwhile boyfriend, is being stumped by bones in suitcases that are turning up all over London. Right. So, oh yeah, and a missing violin. Well, that was going to be my that was going to be my next interjection. And oh. there's a missing Stradivarius <laughs> violin, not just any violin. Right. Well, I think it was an interesting murder setup, at least for me as a writer, because there was evidence of you know murder, but there were no missing people. So it was a weird way to kind of look at it, because usually a person is. Um, you know, found missing, and then, like, you go look for the body, and then you look for the murderer, but you couldn't do it in this 
story. It was kind of in a different round roundabout way. And, uh, you know, there's something, and I've asked this question of Alan First and James Ben. there's something very compelling about World War II as a backdrop for mystery. Um, and I wanted to know what made you want to set a series of mysteries during this time and in in London. I know I know Maggie has <clears throat> sort of gone other places. <clears throat> she's gone to the continent, she's gone to Scotland, but primarily it's taken place in London. So th- I'm always curious because um that's it's a it's a leap geographically and uh on the space-time continuum as well. Well, I think in a lot of ways I feel like the setting and the time chose me. And I was in London just kind of randomly. My husband was working there, um, and as an aside, um, he was doing things for the Jim Henson Muppets, and he was playing Bear Bear in the Big Blue House for Disney Channel, so that's why we were in London. But I ended up having all this time on my own, and I went to the war rooms, and I was just – it was such a catalyst. Like, I can't even explain how powerful the experience was to walk in the war rooms. That's where Winston Churchill and his colleagues basically, you know, led World War II. And so you're walking the same hallways, the same corridors. It's an incredibly intense experience. So that's that's how I got to World War II in London, which is probably not, you know, like an obvious choice for me. Um, I will say that one of the amazing things about World War II is it's something that a lot of people think about as very black and white, like there were the good guys and there were the bad guys. And I really wanted to explore some of the more gray areas of that and some of the more complicated things that went on. And we should mention that these war rooms, because I visited them as well, they're underground. And, yes. and it's, it, is, it is both awesome in the true sense of the word and claustrophobic. Yes. That yeah, it is a bit. Yeah, that in these close quarters, uh, underground, uh, some of the you know the and I'm not tall, but the the ceilings <laughs> seem very low, and that what they were able to do in these environments was nothing short of remarkable, especially in the early days of the war. Absolutely, I think how smoky it must have been. <laughs> Although they did, I, I remember on my tour, they did point out that there was a ventilation system, but it looked, yeah, it looked a, a bit dicey to me. Yeah, well, I think it was probably very smoky, especially when Churchill was there with his cigar. And so the, it's a nice segue into asking you a question about how you do your research. I, I take it the visit to the war rooms was probably one of the sparks for the story. But, you know, how do you do your research, not just in general, but specifically for this book? Because, um, you know, you had to look into things like uh, the bomb squad, what I'm calling the bomb squad, uh, London neighborhoods where Italian immigrants settled and the London library, because the British library was closed during the war, uh, where we should mention Maggie does research on serial killers. Right, right. Um, Yeah, so, you know, what I generally try to do is, research everything I can through, you know, books and documentaries. And then when I have an idea of, like, my story's settings, even if I haven't started writing yet or only started writing just a bit, that's when I plan my trips. So 
So for this trip, um, I stayed near the Tower of London, and I spent quite a bit of time there because, you know, it's like just such a pivotal um, part of the book. But I also went to Clerkenwell, which is a neighborhood in London that is the home of uh, Italians uh, in Britain, British Italians, which are all, they, they're called Britalians. And um, that was really fun. There's still a church there, a Catholic church. There's still Taroni, which is an amazing cafe and deli. And when I went, there were, like, these really amazing little old men speaking Italian over their little cups of espresso. So that, it was a really kind of amazing trip. You know, I I mentioned James Ben earlier, and, and I know that you two are, are friends, and, uh, yeah. Oh my gosh, I love his books, and he's a wonderful person. Like he's just the best. And I see similarities in the arcs of each of your protagonists. You know, both Maggie Hope and Jim's Billy Boyle are really getting worn down by the war, and as you mentioned, you know, the total lack of black and whiteness, and and their parts yeah. in it. And and this is something that's happening to them physically. <coughs> excuse me, emotionally, and perhaps even morally. So I've asked Jim this question, so I'm going to ask you. Did you foresee this happening to Maggie when you started the series? No. I mean, that's... No. I, I started writing Maggie Hope when I was in my late 20s, or at least I came up with the idea in my late 20s, and I'm in my early 50s now. <laughs> so, I mean, I look at life really differently now. Um, I, I think when I wrote Mr. Churchill's Secretary, I was very influenced by being a New Yorker after 9-11, um, and that really fed into my feelings about things. And I, I had a lot more black and white feelings and they have become much more gray and incredibly complicated as I've learned more about things that are going on. And I've had Maggie make the same journey really. That's, that's essentially what Jim said about Billy Boyle. Um, especially the, the book that takes place, uh, in Northern Ireland and, and the Republic of Ireland and his, yeah, his, yes. I, and I'm the name that one, the name of that book is slipping my mind naturally. But when we talked about it's evil for evil. Yes. When we talked about it, I said, you know, that was surprising because, you know, uh, it, it really illuminated how complicated the issue was. And I think your book has illuminated how complicated some of the issues that the British were desperate. I mean, and they were desperate to win the war because things would go very, very badly for them if they didn't. Um, so they were desperate to win the war and they were desperate uh, to get enough food. And uh, they were overworking the people that were helping them, people like Maggie. Exactly, yeah. And no one really had a clue what they were doing. Isn't that the interesting thing? Like we look back and it seems, like, oh, these spy masters and these spies, they were brave and intrepid, which of course they were. But a lot of them were just sort of plucked from civilian life. Like so-and-so knew so-and-so had eaten, and so he became the commander in charge of, you know, the SOE, the Special uh, Operations Executive, the spies. So, so it's very um, – our myths that we constructed in hindsight are 
really different from when you're reading through the actual research and people didn't know how everything was going to end up. And I guess we should also mention the arc of of the Maggie's, you know, being a woman in wartime, you know, and the she's a she's a a math genius, not to put too fine a point on it, and uh, would have made a remarkably good code breaker. She breaks codes in the first two books. Uh, but, you know, at the beginning, she can become Churchill's secretary. And, uh, right. you know, as and it's sort of like as they run out of men to do the job, it seems like it was very grudging, like, OK, we'll let you do this, even though, you know, you, you do have a college degree, which very few of us do. And, you know, you've been accepted to MIT, but uh, oh, well. Right. Well, I think with the help of women was accepted and sometimes, unfortunately, in a very grudging way. Um, but quite frankly, there were just not enough able-bodied young men in Britain to, to wage war. So everybody was called and, you know, most people responded. So I read in the notes from your uh, publicist that Maggie Hope has been optioned. And so do you have any news you can share on that front? Like who, who's oh, going to play I Maggie? <laughs> well, um, Maggie, Maggie, theoretically, and I would love to see this happen, um, would be played by Daisy Ridley, who is Ray in Star Wars. Oh. And I think she'd be a magnificent Maggie. But, you know, fingers crossed. You never know. And, uh, you know, when I got to the end of The King's Justice, uh, Maggie's about to go on a road trip. I don't think that's a huge spoiler because it is a series. Uh, And so I wanted to know if you could tell us a little bit about her next adventure. Sure. So the next book is going to be called The Hollywood Spy. And in it, Maggie goes to Los Angeles to help out her old friend and former fiancé, John Sterling, whose new fiancé has been killed. He suspects foul play, um, but the police haven't really followed up with anything. So he asked Maggie to come and take a look. And Maggie's friend Sarah, the ballet dancer, has also been sort of um, recruited to dance in one of those, you know, World War II movies about the canteen, you know, like stage door canteen, that kind of thing. So um, since Sarah's going, Maggie's like, well, maybe I'll just do that and go get some sunshine and Got to change the scene. So ride my motorcycle through the canyons. Well, it, yeah, right. <laughs> I think she's given up on the motorcycle, though. She's, you know, she's she's in a different place. Well, you couldn't have picked sort of a better uh, location and time than uh, this sort of golden age of of Hollywood um, to set a story. It's gonna ha- you have the ability to uh, have some marvelous characters. Wending oh, right it's through. been really fun, yeah. Susan, thank you so much for talking to us about uh, Maggie and, and her journey and where she's going next. And um, when do you think the next one will be out? Well, the, the, the King's Justice is coming out on the 25th of February, so in 2020. And I hope uh, in a year, so February 2021. Well, we can't wait. Um, I appreciate all the time you've given us and, and answering all of our questions. So thank you very much. Of course. Thank you, Nancy.